Let's pray. Holy Lord, we are surrounded by so many voices claiming to be right. Many of them sway us to follow our sinful desires instead of encouraging our desire to follow you. May we open our ears to hear and obey your word. Your word is truth. Though those same voices say it is foolish to follow you, please strengthen us. Remind us of your faithfulness, of your steadfast love. Remind us that we have been purchased by your blood. And from these truths, give us the discernment to battle against the lies that are spoken to us every day. Help us dispel false gospels to deny selfishness that displaces you, our Lord, and to resist the ploys of our enemy. These attacks that seek to destroy the authority of Christ and to separate us from our Savior. Gird us up, knowing that these attacks have and will come. May we remember that you have overcome the world and the enemy. May we hold to our faith in you. Help us to protect each other, knowing when to call out sin, when to show mercy as you have shown to us, and how to speak the truth in love. Thank you, Jesus, for revealing yourself to us, for declaring the gospel truth to us. Your grace and righteousness will carry us to the end. So may we walk with soberness and endurance in the midst of such chaotic times. To you be given all praise and honor. To our holy and merciful Lord. Amen. 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 Why don't you have a seat? Thank you, Patrick. And then you can open your Bibles to the book of Jude, the letter of Jude. Uh, it's right before Revelation. It is good to see many of your faces. We've had some folks return today who it's been a while, and so we're gl glad to see you, thankful for you. I'd encourage you, if you haven't been here in a while, to reach out and meet some new folks. There's some new faces amongst our crowd, and we're glad for those folks as well. Well, when I was 16... I decided I would take a shot at track and field, add that to my athletic resume along with basketball. And I had zero experience, but I took part in a number of events. I did everything from shot put to uh, high jump and everything in between, and I did some running as well. Uh, my sisters had been amazing runners, one in cross country and one was a phenomenal sprinter. She did the 200 and 400. And so I figured I'd try the 400, see if it worked out for me. You know, got these long legs, got to use them for something, right? So training went okay, practices were okay, but then the first uh, track meet came and something weird happened and it ended up being my last track meet, as you'll see in a second. As I left the blocks in the 400 and started running, I realized that I was far outpacing all the rest of the runners. I was just killing everybody. I thought, oh man, I finally found my calling, right? At the first turn, the second turn, I'd look over my shoulder and see them far behind me and a note of self-congratulations and pride overcame me as I, I passed the third turn. Well, we all know what happens to pride, right? Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Well, as I passed that fourth and last turn, feeling very confident, 
I can only describe what happened to me with the metaphor of what I would guess would happen if you plowed your car into a brick wall. Everything in my body just stopped and seized up, and I'm not kidding you when I say I literally fell to the ground. I crumpled up, and everyone else that was racing with me passed by me as I literally crawled on my hands and knees to the finish line. And needless to say, I finished last. I did finish, but I finished last. It was the height of embarrassment and one of the first major lessons I learned on the topic of endurance. Can everybody say endurance? You see, our society loves flash-in-the-pan stories, one-hit wonders. We celebrate the young who are flashy and, and, you know, hit things big right away, while we yawn at those who have endured faithfully over decades. It's not fancy enough for us. But what I learned at that fateful track meet was that it doesn't matter how passionately or how zealously you start. What matters is that you finish and endure to the end. And this truth is amplified even more so, isn't it, when we talk about things of eternal importance. As we conclude our short mini-series on the application of Mark 13 that we've been covering over the last few weeks, I want us to remember what Jesus was doing when he was giving his disciples and, and thus his church a foretaste of what would occur. Remember, Mark 13 was about eschatology, the things that would happen shortly thereafter, the cross uh, and, and resurrection, and then also at the end of days. And he was giving this to them so that they could have strength in their belief and their faith and they could endure. And we even see this in some of Jesus' words in the, the Gospels. For example, John 13, 19 says, I am telling you this now before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. And remember, belief in the Greek isn't just a mental assent. It is trust. It is putting your life in God's hands. Here's another one from John 14, 29. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. And then even from the chapter that we're doing all this from, Mark 13, verses 22 through 23. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Be on guard. He gave an understanding ahead of the events to the church so that they would be able to believe and endure when these things actually came and took place so they wouldn't be caught off guard, so they wouldn't be surprised, so they wouldn't wilt. Unfortunately, so often I see Christians wilt when suffering and tribulation comes. I even see that in myself sometimes. And I wonder, where's that come from? Because everything in the Bible talks about standing firm in those times. And Peter says something similar, that we are warned by the apostles about what will take place so that we don't become complacent or lose our way. This is 2 Peter 3.17. You therefore, beloved, that's the church, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Notice that lawlessness, that you're not taken away by people who are lawless. In other words, they have no obedience. There's no need to follow the authority of God. They're lawless. And so Jesus is telling his disciples in Mark 13, and overall God is telling the church through eschatology, that we need to be on guard, stand firm in the faith, and endure in hope. And that's what I've entitled this final study in this mini-series this morning, is Be on Guard, Stand Firm in the Faith, and endure in hope. 
Over the last five weeks, we've taken this idea that God's kingdom citizens are those uh, that in the world of uh, chaos that's going on right now, kingdom citizens will have hope, obedience, and holiness, and endurance. And we've looked somewhat in depth at the fact that we can have hope because of the confident expectation of Christ's return as reigning king. Remember, it's not a, a wish or it's not a desire. It's a confident expectation. And so then we've looked at how that overflow of that truth uh, will then flow out into our acts of obedience to his reign within our relationships, pursuing true peace and wholeness under his rule. And today we'll look at the last piece, endurance. Because all of these things, obedience, hope, these things are great, but if they don't end up in endurance, then they're all for naught. And so to guide us in this discussion, we're going to be in the short epistle of Jude. Everybody say, hey, Jude. See, I worked a Beatles reference into my sermon. Hey, Jude. We're going to be in the letter of Jude, directly before Revelation there. And I believe this is a wonderful structure from which to work this morning because Jude is largely promoting the same idea that we're trying to get across. You may even see in your Bibles there a heading that says, a call to persevere, right? Perseverance. So let's turn to Jude now and take a look at it. And what we're going to do is we're going to go through the whole letter. It's a short letter, and we're going to have an abbreviated exposition this morning in, in Jude, and it's going to guide our way. So Jude, verse 1. There's no chapters in Jude, only verses, because it's really just one chapter. And so verses 1 and 2, let's take a look. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Very simply, the author of this letter is Jude. He's declaring himself to be the brother of James, who is the leader of the Jerusalem church in the first century, which also means he is the brother of Jesus. But notice, he doesn't say brother of Jesus. Why? Because the resurrected Jesus is no longer his earthly brother. He is his king. He's his master. And so now he says, I am a servant of Jesus. Well, he goes on there in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You see, Jude had the same uh, hope and problem that I have every Sunday right now, that we as elders have right now in this world of chaos. His desire was to write the saints encouragement of their common faith. In other words, he wanted to encourage them and write a celebratory letter but instead, he realizes he needs to write to them to contend, to fight for the faith, to engage in difficulty. Dear church, can I tell you how much encouragement and peace this has given me and given us as elders? Over the last six months, there have been so many times, you can even ask the elders where I've asked them, like, should we kind of go off what we're doing and what we're covering so that we can just give an encouraging and happy uh, teaching, something nice and kind and sweet that just makes us feel all warm and fuzzy? I think that's what people need right now is warm and fuzzy. But then as we discuss it and pray about it as elders, we realize that while that may have some fruit, there's something going on that we need to preach and teach to contend for the faith. Right now seems like a weird time because it is. And the reason that I've tried to get us to press into some of the hard things over the last six months and really inspect our own personal and communal faith is because, dear friends, I'm seeing the enemy of God at war with God's people. Now, this has always been the case, 
But he is going hog wild right now. Churches are dwindling. Believers are falling to lies and conspiracies and getting embroiled in earthly politics. Division is rampant among believers who profess to have the same king about things that should not be dividing us. Believers are engaging in sinful habits that they haven't done in years because they're coping with things that the world does, alcohol and drugs and casting it aside as if it's no big deal, sexual sinfulness. We're exploding at each other in our marriages as if that's not a big deal. The enemy is going hog wild in the church. And so as shepherds trying to do our best to lead you as a church, we're realizing we need to teach you how to fight, how to contend, how to battle for the truth of the faith. Warm and fuzzy ain't going to help you endure, dear friend. It might make you feel good for a moment, but it isn't going to help you endure. And so the first thing that we must do when given the reality of the chaos we see around us outside the church and within that will most likely I know this is sad, but it will most likely continue and maybe even get worse until Christ, excuse me, Christ's return. The first thing is that we must be on guard. Be on guard against false teachers and false gospels. Jude is going to spend the majority of his letter talking about this, and so we need to give it some time as well. Let's take a look in verses 4 through 19, and I'm just going to read for a bit here. It says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. Now, crept in where? Crept into Jude's house? No, where have they crept in? The church. And why have they crept in unnoticed? Because they're talking and they look like a Christian. They've crept in unnoticed. But these folks who long ago were designated for this condemnation, they're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, that's kind of a cool verse to have in your toolbox, by the way, if you're talking to people who deny the Trinity, notice that Jesus is the one who led Egypt, or led the Israelites out of Egypt. There's a, a statement of the Trinity a bit there. Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion." These are hidden reefs at your love feast. In other words, they would come and have communion and take part in the agape meal, but if you ran into them, you would sink. That's what he's saying there. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever." 
It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. And you think I get heavy sometimes in my teaching. My goodness. Jude just completely lays it out here. He gives us so much to work with. I mean, we could expound on this for a few Sundays for sure to break it down. But for our purposes today, let's look at the highlights. Let's just take a look generally here at some of the things he says. Overall, Jude is telling us to be on guard against false teachers and false gospels. Now, folks, this could come from me. This could come from one of you teaching someone else. This could come from a megachurch pastor, a pastor on TV, a person writing a blog for the Gospel Coalition. It could come from anywhere, and so we have to be on guard. In a sense, this goes back to the idea of the control box. We have to watch what we can control. Can you control anyone else? Can you control what you take in? Yes, you have to watch and be on guard. The enemy has gotten Christianity so far off track that many Christians spend the majority of their time trying to change non-believers to be Christians against their will. And that's ceaseless striving. We're trying to control and we're acting on what we can't control. But then in the church, we've, we've operated in learned helplessness. Well, sin will be sin. Boys will be boys. It's grace. And we let that go as if it's nothing. So we operate in the flesh as Christians as opposed to allowing the Lord to work on the non-believers' hearts and evangelizing them and then being empowered in taking control of what we can control, looking at ourselves, checking into ourselves, seeing what we're taking in. Much of the church operates in ceaseless striving and learned helplessness, but that's not where we're supposed to be. And Jude agrees with what we've been learning over the last five weeks because the responsibility of the church is not to go and condemn the non-believer. It's to say if you continue in that, that walk, you're, you're not going to be with the Lord, you're going to be in eternal punishment. Yes, it's to preach the gospel. But if they're going to do sin, we're not going to get worried about it. We're not going to go, oh my gosh, I can't believe they're sinning. Of course they're sinning. They're non-believers. The responsibility of the church according to Jude, is to proclaim the gospel to the world. And a large part of how we do that is our holiness within the church, making sure we operate under the reign and authority of the king we all agree to serve. But instead, Jude gives us insight here to let us know that the adversary has been at work and he sent agents into the church to infiltrate the kingdom of God with sin, division, and a denial of Christ's authority. Now, this could immediately cause us to be paranoid. Is it you? Is it you? Is it me? Right? And this is happening a lot in Christianity right now, but that's not the intent here. We live in a world that is so enthralled with conspiracy, don't we? Everything's a conspiracy theory. From the Illuminati to QAnon to hyper-eschatology to who lit the stinking fires, right? Everything's a conspiracy. Dear brothers and sisters, paranoia is not of God. There is one conspiracy, and that is the conspiracy of the kingdom of darkness to destroy the witness of the kingdom of light. That's the only conspiracy we as Christians are to be concerned with. 
And because of this, we don't sit in the church and have paranoid ideation that leads to distrust of everyone or believe that there's a demon lurking in every shadow. What we do is we look to the actions of one another and we discern with wisdom. When actions or fruit in a person's life lines up with the reign of Jesus, then we look to that person for wisdom, we fellowship and truth. When the actions of a person's life do not line up with the Lord's word and we see sin, we don't freak out, we don't get paranoid, we don't think there's a broad conspiracy, we simply address it calmly and call the person back to truth. So how do we discern if we or others are tares among the wheat? How do I know if I'm stepping off the rails, so to speak, into fruitless Christianity, false Christianity? Well, for Jude, it seems that he was addressing a particular situation where spiritual leaders had crept into the church he was talking about, and they were selling a false gospel. Because not all who proclaim Christianity, dear friends, are actually Christians. Let me say that again. Not all who proclaim to be Christians are actually in Christ. And this, I believe, is the case in much of the church at large. You have leaders of various movements and even churches that are peddling false gospels. But whether it be a leader or a congregant within a local body, we can use the signals that Jude mentions to be on guard. And Jude is right in line with the words of Jesus. What we mentioned earlier from Mark 13, there's false Christs, false prophets, they'll arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, you, the elect. Now, I think often we, we try to wait for a scary charismatic figure who's got red pajamas and horns and a pitchfork, or maybe he's Nikolai Carpathia from the Left Behind series, and we're going to tell because he gets the, I don't know, he gets nominated for the, the Peace Prize or something, right? And so we're looking for these charismatic figures, but guys, do you realize that's not usually what the Bible's talking about? It's about people who walk in unnoticed. Did you guys see that this last week, the Russian government went and arrested the Russian Jesus? Did you guys see that? He's been in Siberia running a sex cult. Shocking. That's always the case, right? It was the case in Waco. It's the case with this guy. And everybody's like, how could anyone follow him? He had thousands of followers. Thousands. False Christs, false gospels, they, they pull aside even people who are strong believers. And so we have to understand that even if I firmly believe I am saved and I am the Lord's, but I'm operating in the flesh and sowing division, I am at that moment working for the enemy. And I need to repent. So what are the signs that we need to look for in ourselves and in others, the signs of false disciples? Well, first, it's going to be a person who preaches an antinomian gospel. Write that down, even if you don't know what that word means. I'll explain it here. Antinomian gospel. We've talked about this before. Remember that antinomian means against the law. It's from a Greek word for law, and so it's anti-law. And if you want to see orthodox belief as a, a bowling alley, I stole this from Ryan. He uses a freeway, but it's a great metaphor. If you think of orthodoxy as a bowling alley, you've got two major ditches on either side, two, two gutter balls, right? One side is what's called antinomianism. Everybody say antinomianism. And the other side is what's called Pelagianism. Everybody say Pelagianism. Pelagianism is to believe that you can earn the salvation of God through your own merit and hard work because total depravity, original sin, it's not really a thing, so I can just better myself, right? I don't need those things overcome by the cross. This is Pelagianism and it's heresy. If anybody says you can earn your own salvation, they're a heretic and you need to run quickly from them. 
Antinomianism on the other side is to believe that the grace of God has released you from an obligation to be under moral law. But I would broaden that to include Christians who believe that they're not under obligation to obedience because of a view of what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. This too is heresy. If a person says, I can continue sinning so grace can abound, not only are they going against the words of Paul in Romans, but they're just straight heretics. It was this second heresy of antinomianism that had crept into the church that Jude was talking to, and I think it's crept in big time to the church today. 20 years ago, man, I, I heard preachers talking a ton, and I would have preached too against Pelagianism because the big fight was, you know, earning salvation. But in the church of 2020, antinomianism runs rampant. It's as if sin isn't even a thing anymore. And we see that Jude is addressing this, that it's crept into this church he's talking to because he uses phrases like this. Verse 4, pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Verse 7, indulge in sexual immorality. Verse 8, defile the flesh. Verse 16, following their own sinful desires. Verse 18, following ungodly passions. These false religious teachers had crept in and were teaching a doctrine that you can do whatever you want because of the grace of God and most likely, the examples that Jude uses there in verses 5 through 7, speaking of the Israelites and, and really their golden calf experience, oh, we're at the mountain of God, why not have a giant you know, party and do whatever we want and debauchery? And he's also talking about the angels who left their proper authority and engaged in debauchery, unnatural desire. These tell us that sexual license and immorality was being enabled in this church that Jude was talking about. Dear brothers and sisters, the, the phrase sexual immorality is used 41 times in the New Testament. And it's extremely well-defined, and it has been for thousands of years. Be on guard against this continual push of the enemy to get the church to enable sexual immorality within the church. Rather than spending our time berating non-believers on their sexuality, let's act on what we can control, which is to encourage and exhort one another within the body of Christ to sexual purity and stewardship of our sexuality, whether we're married or not. And all of this to the glory of God. And not only should we fight against sexual immorality in the church, but we need to hold ourselves accountable to all holiness, to holiness on all fronts. Think about our reading earlier from 1 Peter. This is 1 Peter 2. Listen to how Peter describes believers. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, non-believers, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, we are not responsible for the behavior of the people of the kingdom of darkness. We're not going to make them holy while they stay in the kingdom of darkness. Act on what you can within the body of believers to keep yourself holy and those with whom you have entered into covenant faithfulness holy. It is this that will glorify God and call others to join us when they see our seriousness about following the reign of Christ in our lives. And it is this which will bring glory to God on the day of visitation. 
Don't buy into any message that allows sin to go unchecked. Don't buy into any church that allows sin to go unchecked. And don't unite with any brother or sister who engages in ongoing, unrepentant sin. Well, next, not only do they preach an antinomian gospel, the next thing that he points out is that they reject Christ's rule and the authority which flows from it. They reject Christ's rule and the authority which flows from it. Their antinomian gospel allows them to do this. While we've been set free of the law of sin and death and the old covenant, which required ongoing sacrifice, Orthodox theology teaches us that Christ's redemption purchased us to be his people operating under his rule. We are saved and justified by grace with no works of our own. Once we are justified, we then walk in obedience to him because we have been purchased and redeemed into his kingdom. The gospel is not just that we have been redeemed, forgiven, and justified. It absolutely is that. Praise God. But it's also good news that all of these things have also happened to enthrone Christ over the inaugurated kingdom in which we reside and in which he reigns. We are not, therefore, authorities unto ourselves. We are subjects under his authority and the authority of the institutions he put in place, including the family, the government, and the church. Now, obviously, any one of those, the family, the government, the church, can act off kilter. And so we have to discern every single time, is this the will of God? But this blatant rebellion that runs rampant in the church, Protestant church, that I don't need to listen to any authority in the church, I don't need to listen to any authority in the government, and I don't need to listen or respect my spouse. Oh, man, that is not of the Lord. You see Jude speak to this with phrases like, they deny their only master and Lord, verse 4. They reject authority, verse 8. There's no fear of authority, verse 12. They're loudmouth boasters, verse 16. He gives examples of angels and people who take authority into their own hands, Korah's rebellion, Balaam's error, and so on. People who regularly operate in a way in which their rights and their views determine truth and stand in an attitude in which they are proud of their defiance are people you need to be aware of. And if you're one of them, I would beg of you to repent. A heart that stands in that pride is not going to get softer. It's only going to get harder to the things of Christ. Third, the antinomian gospel, the rejection of authority, it leads to the fact that the highest authority is this person's own wants, needs, and feelings. Rather than rely upon God's truth to be the statement of right and wrong, False disciples will rely upon their own intuition, their own feelings, their own emotions, and their own personal peace to determine truth. Jude portrays this through statements like understanding things only instinctively, not based upon the law of God, easily moved. They rely upon their dreams, following ungodly passions, and so on. I can't tell you how many times I've run into people who proclaim to be believers who act in complete sin because, well, I just have a peace about it. Well, it makes sense to me. Well, I had a dream, so it must be from the Lord. Guys, this is just not true. Fourth, they're driven by selfishness. There's not a desire to sacrifice for the good of the whole. Rather, they are driven by what makes sense to them for their good. 
Jude uses phrases like abandoning the truth for the sake of gain, showing favoritism to gain advantage. And fifth, lastly, they're scoffers, grumblers, malcontents, those who cause division. These are those who, because they are a law unto themselves, there is no fear of God's authority, there is no true understanding of the gospel, and they're motivated by self. These folks will continually be a thorn in the unity of the church, never pleased, only scoffing and dividing others because nothing is ever good enough, even if it is bringing glory to Christ, because they are the center of their own universe. Part of enduring, dear friends, in these chaotic times is to take our own personal holiness and submission to Christ seriously, and then to exhort one another in this same pursuit as well. In doing so, we will guard against false teachers and false gospels when we see these things occurring within our church, and we will protect the witness of this local expression of the global church of Christ. Guys, I can't do anything about any other church because I have no play in those churches. I can pray for them, but that's it. In the Old Testament, David's mighty men, there was one of his mighty men who got the boring assignment of getting stuck in a bean field. You guys remember that one? And he fought for that bean field. Dear friends, this is your bean field. You may think Mission Fellowship, oh man, Mission, that's where I landed? Oh, bummer. Well, sorry, we're your bean field. So fight for us. Fight for yourself. And fight for our, our proclamation as a community of Jesus Christ. To apply this truth, we can do first things. First, we need to pray for eyes to see these things in ourselves and in others with whom we have covenanted. Dear friends, you know if your heart has been hardened to the things of the Lord, if your heart has been hardened to other people. Give in to that. Let it go so that your heart can be softened and take it to the Lord and say, Lord, break my heart because it's breaking yours. Are we praying for this kind of discernment daily, for discernment against false gospels and false beliefs and false truths? Then if we, we pray for it, and that should be an application point for you, pray for that discernment for yourself, for us as elders, for us as a church, pray for that daily. Then we can then use these practical uh, signs that Jude has given us to discern where the enemy has been given room in our own lives or in the community of this body, and we need to act decisively in love to call ourselves back to the reign of Christ. Where have we given room in our own lives or in one another's lives for sin to go unchecked? We need to repent. Well, then Jude continues on from his signs of false discipleship to tell us, as if to say, stand firm in the faith of Jesus Christ. You can write that down. Stand firm in the faith of Jesus Christ. Let's read Jude 20 through 23 here, and he'll give us the next section. Verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to life and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. He uses an imagery here that harkens back to the Old Testament and how people would stay away from someone who had leprosy because even touching their clothing, they might be concerned about contracting it. We should be that hateful of sin in our own lives and in one another's lives that we stay away from it to that extent. That's the picture he's trying to give. 
We not only need to contend for the faith, but we need to stand firm in the faith while we await the fullness of Christ's reign in our lives. And Jude uses these words of upbuilding, which means to strengthen what's already there. And then he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. The word keep in the Greek there is a Greek word that means to guard as if having someone in custody. So we're guarding against those who are obviously outside of the faith that are creeping in and causing false truths to become apparent. But then we're also guarding in the opposite sense. What's already ours by the salvation of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, we need to guard it and hold it dear. And all of this centers around the love of Christ. Dear friends, this is why we've spent so much time talking about relational aspects of people in the kingdom. We've discussed how to deal with conflict, how to communicate, how to speak the truth in love as the core of the new covenant relationship, how to reconcile when there's division. It's these things, dear friends, that will distinguish us as Christians because the unbelieving world cannot do it. They can't do it because they don't have the empowerment of Christ to live in shalom. We do. And so we've discussed these things because our holiness and our love is what will distinguish us. They go hand in hand. Our love can only flourish in as much as it is tied to our pursuit of holiness in Christ. And our exhortation to holiness will only be as successful as our love for Christ and for one another. Jude then gives three commands of how this plays out in God's people and how they can endure in their fight for holiness. And so we need to take, uh, take stock of it here. First, he says, have mercy on those who doubt. Friends, there will be those in our body, there are those in our body who struggle because they see other so-called Christians sinning, sowing division, or dismissing the law of Christ. And this will cause doubt. We need to lovingly present truth to those who might be young in the faith or maybe a bit immature in their faith and need stability. We need to lovingly come alongside them and point out, hey, this person that was operating in the flesh and in sin, don't follow them. Follow those who are actually abiding in the love of Christ. Then he says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Others in our church will downright embrace antinomian, cheap grace gospel, and will view our desire to walk in holiness as legalism or unloving. Dear friends, legalism means telling someone that they have to follow certain things in order to be saved and loved by God. That's a false gospel. We are loved by God while we are yet sinners. But then we operate under his law of freedom, liberty, and love. The folks here, the ones that we snatch out of the fire, these are folks in danger of playing with eternal fire because they're dismissing the authority of Christ's call to holiness. We need to act decisively when we see this happening and call each other to repentance. Friends, if you see a brother or sister who's dabbling in sin, they're mistreating their spouse, they're goofing around with substances and addiction, they're goofing around with sexual immorality, don't go, ah, gee, I hope that the Holy Spirit will convict them. The Holy Spirit stands in you to convict them. It is your responsibility to your brother and sister to not let it go unchecked. To not do it out of anger, but to do it in love and say, brother, sister, please follow Jesus. The longer we let sin, division, and rebellion go unchecked in a person's heart, the harder that heart will become and the more collateral damage they will cause in the body. Thirdly, he says, to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. There are those in our body who will at times just want to sin. They just will. 
They've manipulated the Word of God to fit their own view of right and wrong, and they fit into a category where we now need to take seriously the call to holiness. We need to call them out of their sin that we so passionately hate because the Lord hates it. But we need to do so with mercy and a sense of fear of the Lord. And if they refuse, we don't freak out. We simply hand them over to Satan, which is what they desire, for the potential brokenness and eventual salvation of their souls. This is the picture that Paul writes to the church in 1 Corinthians 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this person, this was a person who was in blatant sin in their body, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. To continually enable sin that we see is to allow a heart to be hardened and we are enabling them to pursue punishment eternally. To stand firm and say, no, we are calling you out of that. That is love. And friends, we get into trouble when we use the wrong tactic for the wrong situation. We sometimes enable the person in blatant sin, trying to treat them as if they're one who doubts, or we condemn the one who doubts as if they're in blatant sin. We need to use the appropriate tactic for the appropriate situation. And thus, again, we need to pray for discernment. We need to be praying for discernment when we exhort, rebuke, and encourage one another to do so in truth and love and with wisdom. Friends, do you pray for your own responsibility and discernment and for those around you? Do you do that daily? If not, we need to start. Do you pray that others in the body might have discernment towards you when you find yourself in one of these categories? I remember years ago, a brother came to me and, and he had seen Kelly and I talking, my wife and I talking, and she was crying and he came up and he very lovingly said, hey, are you treating your wife well? And I remember thanking him because even though it wasn't a situation where I was the one causing her tears, it was something completely outside of our marriage and I was just providing support. I was so thankful for that brother who came in and lovingly checked. He didn't berate me. He didn't condemn me. He said, hey, how's things going in your marriage? What's going on? I'm so thankful that that brother bared a responsibility for my salvation. That's the responsibility we need to carry for one another. That's how we endure together. Ask yourselves the next time you're in discipleship group or meeting with one another, are we living in a way with one another where we welcome exhortation, invite truth, and accept both encouragement and rebuke? Is holiness in the unity of Christ our greatest desire? We'll endure the chaos that the world brings when we decide to individually and collectively stand firm in the faith that calls us to holiness and repentance and submission to Christ's rule. Well, Jude then finishes with a doxology, and that's where we'll finish as well. And a doxology is a statement of praise that is usually used at the end of a sermon. And with this doxology, Jude is telling us, endure in the hope of Jesus' present and eternal reign. Endure in the hope of Jesus' present and eternal reign. Let's read Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. Remember that hope in regards to the last things of Jesus' kingdom is actually a confident expectation, one for which we wait, not a wish or a desire, but a confident expectation. It is a confident expectation, therefore, that all of our actions, all of our relationships, all of our beliefs flow out of that coming event. And so Jude gives us three statements. 
First, endurance is not going to come from our effort. We can't just white-knuckle endurance. So I could sit here and I could tell you, endure, church, but if it's not based upon pressing into Jesus, it is worthless. If it's not based upon the grace of God that goes before us, it's worthless. We absolutely have a responsibility to participate with the Holy Spirit, to partner with him as he sanctifies us. And this is what the rest of the epistle says, but the source of that endurance is always Christ. And what this means, guys, is that when times get tough, you don't back away from Jesus and his word and his people. You press in. The chaos around us continues and will probably get worse based on what scripture tells us. There's this downward spiral towards sin and darkness. We should expect this, not be surprised by it. And when it comes, it should cause us to fall to our knees and press deeper into Christ and his word and deeper into our relationships with one another and the mutual faith that we have. Attending church should not be a lesser priority. It should be a greater one. Fellowshipping together should not become a lower priority. It should become a higher one. Engaging God's word daily in order to get sustenance should become our top priority. So press in, brothers and sisters. Let the Holy Spirit do his work, but partner with him by engaging these things. He's given us certain tools, and when we don't engage those, and then we come back and go, I just don't understand why my faith is not bold, why I feel dry, there's the reason. Plug in. The Holy Spirit's not going to force himself on you, but as you give yourself to him in humble submission, he will draw you closer and bring strength and conviction of holiness. Next, Jude says, the whole point is God's glory. Dear friends, in chaotic times, we must remember that the arc of history is not about me. Praise God for that. It's not about my good. It's not about my endurance even. It's about God's dominion, authority, and reign. If I plug into that and make that my mission as well, I will endure. The second I start to make this life about me and my reign, I'm going to find myself faltering. I see that all the time. We have to make it about Jesus. And lastly, Jude says that the dominion of God is from times past, now, and forevermore. If our faith is going to get serious only when we're about to die, or if my faith is only going to get serious when I think that the news is pointing to a secret rapture that's about to happen, then my faith will never get serious. Those who are Christ's recognize that his kingdom was, is now, and will be forever. And so we surrender our right to reign in our own lives. We surrender that to him so that his mission becomes our mission. His desires become our desires. Brothers and sisters, in this time of chaos, I have to ask you, even if you have professed being a Christian for a long time, have you given your life, every piece of your life, every relationship you have, have you given it over to his rule and reign? When you find yourself in contradiction to that rule and reign, do you repent immediately or do you still fight finding yourself looking like, like one of these interlopers that Jude talks about earlier? Friends, to be the kingdom of God amidst the chaotic world we find ourselves in, we need to recognize that the truths we discuss on Sundays about Jesus being Savior, Lord, and King have more to do than just about how we get into heaven or how we have our best life now. They have to do with how we think and act and relate each and every moment of every day. 
because we've been bought at a price with the blood of Jesus. When he died on the cross and resurrected, he didn't do that so you could have your best life now. That's heresy. He did it so you could be bought at a price and be engaged in his eternal mission to restore creation. We have to be about how he wants us to spend our time, talents, and treasure, how he wants us to steward our sexuality, how he wants us to steward our finances, our relationships. You and I were bought at that price, and so we need to surrender to him. If we do that, we will endure. It's interesting to think that the more you surrender to Christ, the stronger you get. And so we need to endure in the confident expectation that Christ will continue the work he's begun in us and he will return. And so we are his people and we act with that future expectation. Amen? Amen. Amen.